0: Many of our favourite television series have featured today's guest. Iconic shows that were part of our nightly viewing, defining our identity and celebrating the culture. He captured us through an array of quintessentially Australian characters, telling stories of World War II in the Sullivans, outback Australia in the Flying Doctors, and protecting our borders in Patrol Boat. Fronting them all was the charismatic Andrew McFarlane. In a career that has encompassed television, stage and film, he continues to work in all platforms, citing a delight in a new career turn playing villains. Quite a departure from the John Sullivan we all loved. But that only proves what a dependable and accomplished actor he is. I began our discussion by asking him about studying horticulture, a fact that seemed to pop up in all biographical references to Andrew online. Well, well, I, I, I didn't, actually, and <laughs> funnily enough, I've seen All it. In, the press is lying. Yeah, yeah, the press is lying. Right. I've seen it a few times in, um, you know, Wikipedias and whatever you look at and go, oh, who was this person? And it says, Andrew was this and that and the other and then horticulture. And that no matter what I say or do, that's still there. I'm quite happy to have it there. But no, I didn't study horticulture. So, where where do you think that came from? Well, probably what what was that old saying, you can. (laughs) What was about leading a horde of culture, but you can't? Yeah, that one. Make a Dorothy Parker one. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know where that came from. I mean, I had a lot of uh, kind of fantastical ideas of what I was going to be when I was a big person, when I was young, and one was a missionary in, you know, far flung exotic. Uh, countries um, another one was going to be a doctor um, a diplomat I was going to be in the army and maybe horticultural hopped in there somewhere along the line only because uh, my family were basically from the land well there's a vast array of occupations there well I thought so where did they, have they grown out of your film viewing or I mean why, why a missionary the books I read as a child, I think. And um, they were always adventurous and they were always fantastical and they always took me somewhere else outside of my kind of... um, It wasn't a prosaic upbringing, it was anything, but really it was was full of interest. But it, it took me, my imagination, somewhere else and that's probably why... Uh, I sort of locked onto those kind of professions or those ideas. I loved Egypt, ancient Egypt, Egyptology. I loved history. I liked, you know, exotic things. I loved travel. And then when I finally uh, realised that my profession was going to be as an actor, it kind of fulfilled all those things by proxy. Um, Anyway. Have you been able to tick off... Most of that list. Yes, I mean you've been a yeah. doctor. Yeah, you've been, yeah. I've been a doctor. I've been in the army, the navy, the air force. Um, I've been a lawyer. I've been uh, a missionary, if not a missionary, a priest. That's pretty close. Oh, pretty close. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've been pretty much everything that I would have thought. Oh, that'd be a really interesting profession to do, but I didn't have, I didn't have the self discipline to go ahead and actually get the degrees and and um, qualifications to fulfil them in real life. I just became multifaceted um, and pretended to be them. So you didn't study horticulture. Did you study law? Yes, I did. All right. Um, I left school. I was in Melbourne uh, and I went to Monash University in 1970, I think it was. 69 left school, 1970, um, without exactly knowing what I wanted to do as a Growing up, career person, and I thought, well, I loved history and I liked language and I liked all those, as I said, those romantic things, um, literature and stuff. And at school, we—I went to a school that encouraged a lot of expression, creativity, as well as sport and everything was all an equal uh, standing. So you got house colours if you were in the school play, and you got house colours if you were, you know, in the cricket eleven, and if you are in the footy team, same. And and they encouraged everybody to join into every other activity. Photographic, they made films. So it was a great school like that, um, which would have, which would have um, piqued my interest in acting because we did school plays, we wrote things, we you know, were allowed to direct things, we did it with the girls' school. Um, we, we were allowed to really do whatever we liked. Do you, remember, do you recall a drama teacher perhaps or, or an English teacher that, that was quite prominent then who encouraged Yes. or, or, or Tony Brown. interest? yeah. Tony Brown, who I think only 12 months ago died and he would have been in, in his late or mid-80s, I guess. Now, then, um, and he had been an actor himself in his youth for the, it was the precursor to the Melbourne Theatre Company, the MUR, Melbourne University. Union Rep. Rep, yeah. Rep. Yeah. yeah. And um, so he used to talk about that a little bit, and but he was instrumental in doing all the school plays and he would um, direct them, of course, and he would encourage us and he'd do classes and stuff like that and taught us all about it. And, um, and he was the one that when I left school and, and realised that I didn't want to be a teacher or, or a lawyer, which was the arts law what degree that I was doing, um, that I did want to be an actor but I didn't know anything about it so I needed to learn and w- how would I do that? So I rang Tony Brown and he said, I don't know whether you're hard enough to be an actor. <laughs> he thought, which was pretty, a, a, a Resilient enough? Yeah, resilient. To, to yeah. cope with the knockbacks? Yes, of, yeah. and that it is actually a really hard business even though it's full of fabulous, you know, uh, Showbiz yeah, It's, a, it's a wonderful lights. profession, but a tough industry. Yeah, you got to, and you learn that as you go along, actually. But I don't think you want to lose the feeling. Like I love this industry, and it's it, it is a marvelous kind of um, arena to play in, literally. But it is also it's tough, and you've got to be self reliant, and you've got to understand that you're going to get some really hard knockbacks, and some of them. Uh, not justified, but some of them you go well that's understandable, but others are totally inexplicable and you, and, and you can't believe that you're losing something for no reason at all, and you can lose faith in yourself as well if you 're not careful. So it is a hard industry like that. do you remember some of the the school plays you did? Oh, I do I yeah. think um, I think the first one I did was it was Shakespeare strangely, and it was King Lear, and I was a gentleman. That's a, a, a gentleman of a baptism of fire. I was a gentleman, and I walked on, and, I, and my first line was, lay hands upon him. <laughs> um, and I think I had something like, oh, how a noble heart cracks or something like that, or that might be a Hamlet. But anyway, I, he came on when poor Lear's out in the storm being mad, and, um, and I had to sort of bring him in, and I held a, literally held a spear. <laughs> You were a spear carrier. I was. A a talking spear carrier. But uh, but you were born in Albany, in WA, weren't you? Yes. So how did the family get to Melbourne? Well, um, talk about actors being gypsies. uh, My family, not that they were, but they moved around a lot. And because of my father's um, profession, which was with a meat and livestock company, a pastoral company called Thomas Borthwick & Sons, which was actually English, but it was 100% Australian um, activity. Uh, And it was cattle, um, um, livestock. It was on the land. And Dad and his... He had uh, two brothers. um, And my mother... My mother's family were all on the land as well. And both his brothers were, uh, if not on the land, they worked in that area as well. And I think Dad always wanted to be a farmer, wanted to be, you know, working out on a farm. And um, so he was in that industry, but he, I think his first job as a newlywed, and they were in Mount Gambier in South Australia, and both my parents are South Australian, so they started there after the, the war. And um, he was a buyer of fat lambs, was his title as a 30-year-old newlywed about to have his first. Well, actually, they would have been younger because my sister, my sister, sister's four years older than I am. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes, yeah, she was born just after, I guess, Dad came back from service overseas and they went to Mount Gambier, his first posting with the company. And then he kept on getting promoted in in the business. He had what? then was called Acumen, I guess, and he would have left school at a fairly early age, probably 15 or 16, thinking that, oh, well, I'll, you know, get out there and I'll get my own place and start running a property. And But he got a job with elders or gold, gold or whatever, wheat, wool, sheep. And um, he start, kept on getting promoted and they put him in and they went, oh, this this young man's got some kind of natural business ability, and he got put into the business side of of, of a pastoral company, um, against what his natural instincts were, I think, and so he got posted to the, as branch manager to the um, to the office in. Western Australia in Albany, the country town where I was born. And then after that, he went to Brisbane, which was the general manager up in the Brisbane firm. And then he got head office in Melbourne. That's how we did this loop know. around the country. Yeah. And then London was his next step because that's where the head office was. And he would go back and forth. And that was later in the 70s when, you know, he was in doing business by jet planes and, you know, all that stuff. But yeah, so we started, always it was to do with the country because of the, his pastoral um, profession. But for us, for the kids, it was fantastic because we had, you know, our lawnmower was a sheep. Um, he'd bring a sheep home and that had, you know, grazed the lawn. We had a horse in the backyard occasionally. Um, we had animals always around us. We were taken out to, to cattle stations and and grazing areas and my uncles were on the land. So from the earliest age you know, we were very familiar with country life as well as as a, as we moved into bigger and bigger places, city life as well. So, you know, it's a really really great way to have a childhood. But did you did you go to a few schools? Well, only only when you know we moved cities, and in Western Australia, I left when I was five. So I guess that was like a preschool and the first year at school, and then went to Brisbane, and then I went to a state school, Ascot State School up there. And left when I was about eleven, uh, down to Melbourne. So I did my so then secondary, secondary school, school, yeah, and then university first year, and then finished. Didn't finish it because I decided that I was going to be an actor. Went to Sydney, which was part of the uh, University of New South Wales, and so that's how I kind of did my my tertiary. My whole education was like that. So. Um- when was this realisation that you wanted to be an actor? What, had you seen something? Had well, you been doing university uh, theatre? Yeah, I had been working at uni at, at you know, the monash players and i thought that were the most ridiculous thing i did but they were writhing on the floor and you know being strange existential creatures and <laughs> and playing really way out sort of psychedelic music and i thought i i thought acting was you know you st- stood up there and spoke in a beautiful voice and i was a very snobby and very so what's it this is the late 60s yeah 1970 yeah. <clears throat> um and and it wasn't for me, that kind of thing. I, I I just didn't really want... I'd done a lot at school, loved all that. Um, and so I thought, oh, I'll continue that as a, as a hobby. But then it dawned on me, it was a gradual dawning that it could actually be my profession, that that was the strongest uh, impulse I had as a career was to be an actor. And as I said, I, I rang Tony need to go, I need to learn. I, don't, I, I, I want to do this, but I don't know how to do it. Um, and I'm not, I'm not good enough to do it on my own. I have to, I have to have a basis, a technical basis. And how do I do that? And he was the one that alerted me to this strange place I'd never heard of called NIDA, and um, the National Institute of Dramatic Art in Sydney. And he told me how to apply for it. There'll be advertisement in the paper, and da-da-da-da-da. and off it went. Um, Which was still a young school at that time. I guess. It was really. I think it had only been in existence maybe what eight years. Yep. Something, yep, like, something that. like that. And. Um, which is strange to look back on now, which is some 40 or so years later, yeah. um, still at the University of New South Wales with a totally different campus. It's moved, you know, down the hill um, away from those beautiful spreading Morton Bay fig trees that we were oh, right. yep. students on. That, that, that theatre's still there. The yeah. theatre yeah. is still there, a little tin shed of a corrugated iron-roofed theatre that our performances used to get interrupted quite frequently by. It sounded like um, massive hail hitting the roof, but it was actually the figs of the Morden Bay fig hitting, raining down, raining <laughs> on the tin roof. And if it wasn't that, it was the possums jumping up and down. And if it wasn't that, it was the torrential downpours of Sydney leaking through the ceiling and wetting us on stage through all the light fittings. But I, I guess <laughs> drama school was unlike anything, well, for most of us, it's unlike anything we've ever experienced mm. before. What, what do you remember of those days studying at NIDA? Um, well, that was the first time I'd left home as well, not just... So so uh, you were... Oh, you'd been to uni, so I'd get... You I was, was 19, 19, turning 19, turning 20, right. and it was Vietnam War days, and I had actually been called up. Um, you know, they had conscription, they had national service, and... Then I put the fear of God into you. Well, you know, in that, a weird right? way, I was, I was in a world of... I wasn't, you know, Walter Mitty or anything, but I wasn't really... The most realistic child or young person. I hadn't lived at all. I, I my mind was searching for everything and 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 was interested in everything, but I hadn't actually focused on anything. And Monash University was trying to do that, I think, but I couldn't really see what it was um, as far as my internal, you know, my philosophy in life and who I was and where I was heading and what did I, what what did I make of this world I was in because. I had a, you know, my family were very. Uh, uh, they weren't traditional. That's not the word. But they were very um, comforting and stable, and you know, they were. They were. Well, the politics was you voted liberal, right. Um, and by no means were my family narrow-minded or blinkered, but... But that was very much um, of the land, wasn't it? Sort I think of, so. You know, the, you know, rural folk and yes. farmers. And r- they were conservative, but in a very open conservative mm. way. They were traditionalists, put it that way. They were traditionalists. And they encouraged... I've got two sisters. They've encouraged all of us to be ourselves and do whatever we want so long as we fulfilled our inner selves, which I think is a good philosophy. Um it didn't really matter what we did so long as we were proud of what we were doing and made a good fist of it. But, yes, so Monash University was the hotbed of student rebellion, ironically, and here was this me walking around in it going, I, you know, in a fog, really, uh, a political and a philosophical and, uh, you know, my own emotional self hadn't been developed at all. So going to drama school opened all those doors because you have to open all those doors and windows and cellars and attics in yourself to be able to uh, express what uh, a playwright or a screenwriter is trying to, you know, impart to an audience. And you've got to discover these people that you're you're inhabiting uh, and bringing to life who are not you. But you can only do that. You can only do that by by getting in touch with who you are and realising that... Often you're sadly lacking in many many things, um, and you've got to you know you've got to um, build that up, and you've got to explore that area so that you don't have to you don't have to accept it and say oh yes that's definitely what I want to be, but you have to recognise it and explore it, you know otherwise you can't express it. Don't forget, there are many more interviews available from The Stages podcast, including this one from Stuart Green, theatre historian and bar manager at many of our live theatre venues and cinemas. Stuart has worked in theatres for the past 40 years and has a myriad of tales about the folk who have adorned the stages and behind the scenes. And And even the last years of the match... Uh, the dancers, the people like we used to get, we we had no green room at Her Majesty's, you remember the downstairs bar, that was the green room, so when you had a musical in like 42nd Street, you'd have 40 in the cast, you'd have 60 working backstage, 30 piece in the orchestra, 30 piece orchestra, uh, and they'd all be out the bar afterwards, so we'd be talking theatre all night, it was like going out every night, it wasn't like working, working at Her Majesty's for 27 years was like going out every night for 27 years. Um, and the same with the Royal but the Royal didn't have the bar the bar wasn't open afterwards so it was like party time yeah. and you could talk theatre all night to anyone yeah and they'd stay there it yeah. was great yeah but... who were your uh, your teachers at NIDA? Um well John Clark was the uh, head of the whole school and he was there for a, what nearly a great 50 years. years or yeah, something yeah. and he was relatively new as well Actually, I think Michael Body had started the whole thing, and then John came in maybe four years before we got there. Um, we had Aubrey Miller. I guess they were all in their thirties in the then. And, we, and Australians who had worked overseas, or um, we had. A, well, I'm jumping around a bit, but so Aubrey Miller was a young Australian, but had worked, and a lot of people were over had gone to London in the yes. in those so they had that days. experience, that training, that, yeah. Um, or oh, well, they'd been APIs. to university here, Sydney University, whatever, and they'd learnt various skills and whatever they were doing in their di- directing or in their voice classes. We had Peter Carroll as a voice teacher who became... Later, he, he um, came back into the acting profession and I think he'd taken time out to be to be academic, actually, and he was always marvellous for voice, and I still do his, his voice exercises warm-ups, and warm-ups and classes. You know, that's what I do because we were taught that way, and, he, and he, his voice is fabulous. I mean, he's worked for the opera, for goodness sake, as well as yeah. from it's Shakespeare to, extraordinary to extraordinary, everything. Yeah. Um, we had an extraordinary character called Alexander Hay, who was from Scotland originally, but was very very English in a strangely mannered way, but a fabulous actor. And he actually he taught us acting, but mainly it was the Alexander Hay Show and we just sit there and watch him. That's how we kind of learned acting in a way. Sometimes not what, you know, what not to do because he was grand. And very demonstrative. Incredibly yeah. demonstrative but extremely funny um, and incredibly knowledgeable about the history of theatre and where it came from and also what kind of performers, you know, to look at and what, what techniques was were used, etc., Oh, well, we had guest people and John Bell would come in and Richard Werrick would come in because we were the first third year to go through. Right. So we did a two-year course, which was perfectly mapped out and and, and that's the way it was going to be. But then they went, oh, actually, we're going to make it a three-year course, but they hadn't worked out what that third year was going to be uh, for us, which stood us in pretty good stead because they just gave us plays to do, which we loved. (laughs) All we wanted to do was leave because we thought we'd done two years and now we want to get out in the big wide world. But the second best thing to not being there was to just do play after play after play. And so we had all these guest directors come in and um, uh, John Tasker, who was with the South Australian Theatre Company for a, quite a few seasons, uh, was and did specialised in um, Patrick White. In fact, I think Patrick White specified that only uh, John Tasker would direct. direct his plays. Until Jim Sharman and Nick Hartfield, yeah. and-, and Jimmy Sharman came in one time and did. You know, sometimes you just have a master class with these people, or you'd have a week with them. But at least you were seeing all these different uh, r- young. You know, they were all young people. When I say young, they're in their thirties, I guess. Um, and they they had visions and and they had different ways of doing things. And you know, John Bell and that group, they all started the Nimrod Theatre then, yeah. uh, which was which is now the Stables Theatre, Griffin Theatre up in King's Cross, but it was this tiny little little 1800s, um, sta- literally a uh, stable, um, and it was just a few planks and with a couple of boards at the back so you could sit and, and have a cushion, if you were lucky, and watch these incredible performers and directors doing things and different voices of plays that, you know, weren't being shown anywhere else because it was still, even Green. we didn't have a national or a state theatre company... Uh. It was very traditional. Yes, very English plays and even the the commercial theatre were were tours of... um, Mm, They were still even bringing people out to star in them, English people. Mm -hmm. Um, And the musicals would be a big American person to come out and do it. And um, these smaller theatres and the ensemble was another one with Hayes, Gordon, you had to cross the bridge or get the ferry and that was a bit scary because nobody in the eastern suburbs (laughs) went over to the North Shore then. And in fact, even now... Uh, Sydney's re- weird, yeah. that they kind of, if you haven't experienced going across the bridge, they people get scared that they'll get lost and never come back. And, of course, Sydney Theatre Company didn't even exist. It was the old tote. Exactly. at the time. Exactly agree, right. right. Yeah. And the old tote, and I've seen it a few times, um, a theatre company that's been uh, traditional and it's been, you know, a, a kind of a landmark, but it's reached... It's in the state of decline, and the old tote was that. It had a lot of money. It, they had lavish productions. There were beautiful costumes, the lighting, everything you could expect, and traditional, traditional, boring choice of plays most often and not much content, and you would sit there. And we were very uppity little, you know, snooty drama school students, which is often the worst audience you could imagine because we know much better than anybody <laughs> else. Um but even so, we could tell that this was this was a, a theatre form that was, it's had its time, it's had mm-hmm. its day. We wanted to get up there ourselves and shake it up. Not that we were revolutionaries, but you definitely didn't want to see crinolines and well-spoken people anymore. You wanted to see rough and very, Yes, you know, immediate theatre. No more fan work. A lot of fan work (laughs) was going on. So what happens upon graduation? Did you walk straight into work? Yes, and ironically, it was television work because um, my time at at NIDA was 99% geared towards theatre stage work. And then in the last week, maybe the last term, you'd do a couple of exercises at the ABC to work in front of a television camera with TV directors. and, And television... When I say it was new then, I don't mean it was a new invention or a new experience to sit and watch television, but to think that you would be performing on television was something that hadn't entered my head at all. And, in fact, we kind of looked down on it a bit. We sort of went, oh, that's easy. And that's a little bit, if you're going to say commercial, it was like that. You go, oh, no, we want, we're traditional, we need to be, you know, doing beautifully written scripts and really remarkable performances on stage in front of a live audience. Well, my agent and I got an agent that graduation week, you all had to go and perform and do your auditions. auditions. Yes, and then if you were lucky, you were given a, a card you had to hand around cups of tea and sandwiches to the agents and if you'd all run back and go, how many have you got? How many cards have you got? I haven't got any. Go back in. <laughs> There's somebody in the corner now. And you'd get a card and say, ring me. So you might get two or three. And um, then you could, if you were lucky, you could choose if you felt comfortable with somebody. Anyway, I went to uh, international casting. Gloria Payton was a remarkable woman who was one of the very... The first um, theatrical agency in Sydney, and she trained a lot of people that then went on had their own agencies, and Annie Churchill Brown being one um, with Shanahan's, and I think um, June Can was around. But those women—they were all women, interestingly as well—they um, were instrumental in making an industry an industry of acting. And Gloria, very early on, saw television and film. Uh, as the new and vital kind of art form that was going to happen, and she saw me in it, she looked at me and she said, "You're going. That's what you're going to do. You're going to be working with film and TV." And I went, "What?" <laughs> because again, well, it was only about 14 years old, I guess in so. Australia, wasn't it? I guess so. And um, but, but but you know, um, you're an incredibly handsome man. Well, so, there was that. You or... know, you have you had a perfect face for television. Well thanks for that but yes i have to say when i was young like that you i was good looking you're young nobody had seen you before you just come out of a drama school um and they were kind of hungry for for new young faces and talent hopefully and that television fed on that and that's exactly what happened so um i i got this script my agent rang me we were at a pub after this television exercise at the ABC, and they knew where we were. Like we didn't have mobile phones or anything. It was, you know, no. a completely different world. Uh, but they knew where we'd be at a certain given time. And so they'd ring the St. Leonard's Pub or Chatswood or wherever we were on the North Shore and say, you know, is so-and-so there? And this day it was, is Andrew there, and there was, Is this bloke called Andrew McFarlane here? Uh, yeah. He said, you've, re- you've got your agent on the line. <laughs> and she said, get the train in here. There's a script in here because, and you're going to go to Melbourne on Monday. That was Friday. And that, that's right. No technology. You can't, I won't email the script. No, you no, had no. To physically go in and pick it up. Totally. And it had about three or four names crossed off it. Who'd um, already read it. Yes. And either <laughs> couldn't do it or didn't want to do it. And I'm pretty sure one of them was Drew Forsythe's name was there because he was with my agent then too. And that's how I started. I got this script, and I was um, I was uh, it was for a cop show that Crawf- it was Crawford Productions in Melbourne because they did everything new and uh, employed all the technicians as well as the writers and the actors of the day, really. And it, but it was based in Melbourne, and um, they did a host of cop shows, and then they branched out into you know as the years went on into miniseries. I mean iconic shows cameras. like Matlock Police and Homicide and Division Four, which. Yeah, was this the it was your first? Matlock Police was my first um, guesty role. It was my first role on television, and it was with um, I was Harold Hopkins' brother, younger brother, and I was Anna Marie Winchester's. Both of whom have died since. You know, this is what we live in as well: cancers and God knows what else. It's not fair. These fabulously talented people, and they go before their time. Anyway, I was with these two fabulous, beautiful-looking people and um, I was Anna-Marie Winchester's g- gormless young husband. <laughs> and um, and that's how I kind of started to realise what it was like working in front of a television camera and learning a script and... and Very much learning on the job, I guess. Totally learning on the job. Of that My first scene was a car crash, but it had to go over a cliff. And... Um, so we're all sitting in the front of this FJ Holden or whatever it was, and it was on, it was on, um, you know, pneumatic tyres. It was jacked, it was plonked, so it could have this sort of motion as if it was driving. And I had to mark, you know, it had the steering wheel, and they had crew members with big rods and sticks on the outside that could jerk the car suddenly. And but you had to, you know, suddenly go over a cliff because you'd, you'd hit something or the tyre had gone out or whatever. That was the the plot turn in the story. So that was, that was the first kind of real, how do I do that? How do I make that actually look as if even half believable to go over, screaming over a cliff? <laughs> I'd like to see the episode again to just see how exactly... And then the camera, of course, would be handheld and it would be twisting and turning with you. So, yeah, you know, and you're on location, you're out in the middle of nowhere, freezing in the rain, usually if it was Melbourne, um... And you just learn on the job, but you were surrounded by all these pretty incredible, uh, talented actors who were older than you and had been doing, if not in television, uh, stage work for years before you'd ever arrived on the scene. And that's how I learned. Well, you've, you, go you've, on. You've learned a bit since then, of course. Every job you learn, and that's what I wanted. That's why I left series as well to learn more. Mm. You know. What's the difference between acting for th- in the theatre and acting for screen? Well, I always. We used to puzzle on that as well, and then I, I think there is—is is I mean, it the size of performance, or um... it's the thought of the performance? I think. I mean, there really is no difference because you're acting, you're you're being this other person in a given imaginary situation, and but it, it, the the difference for me is that the camera is actually doing an enormous amount of work for you um, because it's you know you're looking as an audience. At a whole lot of stuff that you're not aware of as the actor uh, in front of the lens. And it's already looked at something else, and it's being, in post-production, it's being edited and cut so that the audience is starting to feel a certain way before you've even done anything in in, in some most respects. But the difference really is, I guess, that for, in front of a television camera, you really only it's a thought process more than a demonstrative process. Do you feel in control of the performance there? Oh, yeah, very yeah. much. In fact, sometimes more, right. in a way, because it's so internal that if you're not thinking and you're not feeling feeling it as you should be, the camera will... Know, it knows when you're lying. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, pa- paradoxically, it can also, <laughs> because of editing and because of music and because of lighting and all sorts of things, you can have an absolutely passive face, and there's been an experiment done with it before. And you can juxtapose that absolutely thoughtless and blank face with other images and what uh, to make you feel something completely different. you go oh my God, that Manipulate is- the audience. Yeah, Yeah, where they might be underscoring, I guess. Yeah, so you can look at that face and it may be surrounded by other images that cut back and forth and Mm. you think, oh, my goodness, that person has just lost their whole family and they are so numb with grief they can't move. But, in fact, you haven't done anything. Or it could cut around and show a whole lot of very comic and amazing things. You go, oh, my God, that person is just holding the laughter in so much they're about to burst. The camera reads your eyes. It reads behind your eyes. So if you're not connecting with it emotionally... It's going to show. And we've all, even if you don't really know what's going on as an audience, we've all sat there and watched things and you go, hmm, it's something, you didn't believe it. There was something that didn't impact on you. You think, oh, yes. But when it really does, it it affects you deeply. Often you can't explain why, but you recognise something of the human condition in what you've just seen. I mean, on stage... it's not that you fake it, it's just that it's different and, and, you know, it's a vast auditorium that you're playing to. I mean, it can be a very small theatre group, but it can be a big group as well. So you're using your whole body a lot of the time, all of the time. Whereas in film and television, they often say, we're just using, the, you know, from your from your neck upwards. Um, and if you do anything else, it's going to be extraneous. It's not, a, it's not going to be seen, and B, it can actually interrupt the performance because you'll start moving uh if you move your hands when you're in extreme or a normal close-up your head's going to move as well and it gets shaky and it gets annoying so you've got to learn all these techniques of how to distill yourself into being um what the camera wants at that given moment i'm peter ayers and you're listening to stages Don't forget to investigate other stages podcasts featuring conversations with creatives and artists about their careers, processes and what matters to them. Leading lady of the Australian stage, Geraldine Turner, reflects on the challenge and responsibility of leading a company, often on a long tour.
1: And there have been times in my life when I haven't come up to the... the place I should be in, in leading the company. I've always led the company, but you know I've been a brat sometimes too, and you know as far my as private lead, life. by example. Yeah, my private life has taken over, and I've been you know quite mad, but but at times. But that's still,
0: a, a mature, is that earlier in your career? Well, I that's suppose a so. Thing, I'm certainly not that?
1: that now. I'm not that person <laughs> now, but um, yeah, um, I think I've always had that ability to lead a company and I don't even know what that is what the definition of that is but I think I do have that and I I'm very much aware I'm very inclusive and want everyone in the cast to be great and I'm not one of those people who I'm the leading person and I don't care about anyone else and I'm not giving you a moment you know I can't stand those sorts of performance.
0: You talked before, mentioned um, Crawford's, Crawford Productions, an iconic production house in Australia, gave us lots of great television during the 60s, 70s, 80s. Yep. Tell me about Hector Crawford because he's a man that's uh, sort of, um, uh, is quite luminous in your career. Um, Iconic man, really. He started um, with music um, and I think it was music for the people Uh, and he was in radio and his wife, Glenda um, Raymond, was her um, was her name before before she married Hector, and she kept it as well. And she was quite a renowned um, singer, beautiful singer in opera, light opera perhaps, but you know, a beautiful voice. And that's how they met. He was a conductor as well, Hector. So he knew music a lot. And he used to do a very popular thing music for the people and it would be televised. And he organized that and he saw very, very clearly from a very early time, probably from the late fifties, that television he must have had a he must have had a I don't know, an instinct, a drive, a passion. He saw the future and it was television for him. A popular to show the rest of the population what only a small proportion would normally see in a theatre or at a certain performance. Um, So his drive was to show what great actors, what great writers, what technicians we have, what great stories we have to tell in Australia. And he set up this company, as I said, started with radio, music, and then it branched into television, um, and the first studios were in Abbotsford, I think, in, in Melbourne. Um, Crawford, and it was a Crawford production, and it was very emphatic that it was a Crawford CP. production. CP, <laughs> and he knew how to sell himself, but he was never an arrogant or a uh, you know, a self aggrandizing person, but he knew that he carried a, a cachet if you saw his name or you... It, it did mean something, and he also physically had a great presence, a little bit like Gough Whitlam did, and, in fact, not dissimilar in a way. They had silver, silver hair. They were tall. They were big. Uh, you'd notice them when they walked in the room and they had a personality that you couldn't ignore. And they had opinions, strong ones. And his opinion was that Australia was ripe and ready for Australians' told stories on television and the TV networks were shirking if they didn't put them on. And he got on to... Um, Channel 9 was his first one, I think. But he, he, he lobbied them all seven and I don't think it was ten then, but Channel O I think it was in those days, and said, I've got these products, I can make them. And they pretty much mostly laughed him out of the office, just went, well, has it got dancing girls in it? Has it got feathers? Has it got comedy? What is it? He said, no, it's drama. We don't do drama. And we've got American programs that do do that. No, 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 we're telling these stories and I've got these great actors and and you're all going to fall in love with them and I'm going to make them stars, was his credo. And he gone on to Kerry Packer, who owned Channel Nine, and and he said, "Okay, how about you put this on? And I think it was um, Homicide, uh, and see how it goes." And for a season at this price, and he did, and it would and lo and behold, it became the top the show show to watch in Australian living rooms. And and Packer went, oh, "I need more. Oh, I need more." He said, "You need more." He said, "It costs a lot more money as well. So you give me more money, I'll give you another show." And that's how it started. And he then got Matlock Police, Division 4, which is where I, after my car crash over the hill, over the cliff episode in Matlock, I went as a regular character for a year as a young policeman in Division 4. And it was always Crawford's. And now I've got... There are people who were directing top top shows who started as sound recorders on, on those kind of shows. Because one thing Crawford Productions did as well was encourage anybody... Um, to move into any area they wanted, if they showed an interest, they were working with a camera, but they wanted to go into the editing room. That avenue was open to them. If they wanted to, um, if they were a, a director, but they wanted to write, that was open to them. All sorts of stuff like that. So, you know, that they, they changed the face of of Australian entertainment totally. You you worked in a very much a golden period of television with, with shows like The Sullivans and um, Patrol Boat, The Flying Doctors. But you, am I right in saying that, that you were very selective in your choices and you, you didn't wouldn't stay with the show for very long? I mean, you, you left Flying Doctors at the height of its popularity, I think about 16 episodes in. Uh, oh, one season I did. Yeah, I yeah. did th- I did that with The Sullivans too, and that was um, after... Well, I did it with Division 4, so I'll go backwards. So it's been a pattern and... Is that not wanting to be stuck in in a role for too long so that that becomes synonymous with with Andrew McFarlane? Uh, Yes, but a slightly different version, not so much that it was synonymous with me. It was more that I might get stuck with it and I knew instinctively and obviously because I'd watched myself that I didn't know enough. I wasn't good enough to rest on my laurels, so to speak, to go, okay, good, I'm playing Constable Roger Wilson in Division 4. It's a top rating show. They want me to go in for the next year. I went, I don't. No, I'm not going to. Um, sometimes I left too early. I should have stayed longer. Um, but other times, mostly, it was a wise decision because you're right. I didn't get stuck with only being known as that character, and it pushed me into an area of maybe slight insecurity. And but I learned so much more. And then I got another character under my belt, and I went, oh, oh. And I was getting older. You know, each year would be somebody else. And I also went off and went back and worked on stage. So I I made sure that I did both of those things and and particularly in that era, you could do that quite easily, float between the medium. Um, And it's important for an actor too to have those opportunities where you are keeping both crafts... I alive think so, and and oiled. I think so, um, because and well, just the same as if you're a dancer and a singer and an actor, then you should be doing all those things. And unfortunately, I can only pretty much do one of those <laughs> things, except on play school, when I insist on doing them all, um, much to people's chagrin um, and amusement. But um, yeah, it's it's it is your obligation to to exploit as much of. Of the natural talent that you have, and then to, and then to uh, encourage and develop what talent you don't have. Really push yourself into areas you're least secure with. You know, until you realise, as you've got to be realistic, there are some things that you just are not very good at, or and there are some things that you're quite good at, but you could be a hell of a lot better at if you just applied yourself more and pushed yourself into more risky situations, which is kind of what I've always tried to do um most impressively you've always been very open about your sexuality in a time where you know young actors are, are fearful of missing out on casting opportunities because you know uh, producers audiences perhaps know that they're gay so Producers aren't willing to to give them an opportunity. Um, we see it a lot in in Hollywood, I guess, in America that, that actors yes. are scared of coming out in case it harms their career. But you've not been afraid of that. Well, I don't know whether that's true or not, actually. <laughs> um, and I don't think no, no about me. Right. I don't know whether I have never been. Um, what was your phrase? Never been. Uh, you've never denied. Uh, you've been. You've always been open about your sexuality. Well, I don't think I have been always no? open as about my sexuality, and not. And I never denied anything. I never did. But, but but you didn't broadcast it of course i'm just mean you were yourself i was and i always ha- knew that i would be true to myself and and you know my own experience but i wasn't out there um tr- waving a flag or trying to um you know change the status quo as such because i i, I wasn't confident enough and the times weren't as they are now, where it is a lot more open and, and acceptable as a general way of being. And in television and, and not in the theatre, but in television there's publicity, there's front covers of things, you're young, you, you're always matched with with you know the eligible young girl so, and there's this game that people play. Now, there's nothing wrong with it, but... Uh, but it's also something that you can find yourself, if you're not careful, um, hedged in. That I that you have to play that kind of role play. Um, I didn't do that, but at the same time, I didn't sort of stop the cameras and say, "Excuse me, <laughs> this is all a lie." This is because it wasn't a lie. It was just I, there was no need for it. And in fact, then the publicity machine and the press and it didn't didn't even want to know that they prefer not to if that was the case because, oh, how do we sell the magazine if he's not there with, um, you know, the latest young starlet? That doesn't add up. They couldn't work that out. And I don't know how it is now um, for young um, gay actors. a lot easier on one level, but still I think those weird commercial... Considerations come in, and they don't know how to sell someone. They they know how to sell you if you're if that's all you are, and that's all you do, and it's quite obvious that you're just going to be this incredibly, you know, gay char- character. But if you don't actually fit a mould and you're not a not a cliche, for want of a better word, then they don't know what to do. But look at all the shows in America now, mainstream shows that have fantastic gay characters, the gay issues, gay stories. Same in Australia. Um, the times have changed completely. We've now got, you know, uh, equal marriage uh, legislation. We've just got a completely different outlook on on what normal life is, and normal life is everything combined. That's what normal life is. Every, there's everything for everybody. Um, so it shouldn't really make any difference at all, but there's this weird thing, as I said, people... I think the trouble is people... In a certain industries, you want to classify. They only know how to sell something if they can classify it a certain way. Yeah. And we all know the most interesting things in life are the ones that you find hardest to classify. That's what makes them so intriguing. You're an integral part of Play School. Do you, you, do you still do that? I do, but I always um, Play School. Nobody's on a contract. you always if you're available, and then they're making a series of episodes. Uh, they do batches during the year. Then that's great. Um, but if you're working a lot, which I have been in the last couple of years, you're often not available at all, and it's kind of dis- it's really disheartening because suddenly two years go by and you haven't done any place call episodes. Is it one of your favourite jobs? Well, it's it, it's it, well, I guess it is because it's unique in what it does and and the audience it's reaching, and it's an iconic show. It's over 50 years old from the very first episode. Um, And it's never lost the appeal, um, and it's never lost the importance of preschool um, contact and education, but entertainment as well. Um, And there is a certain skill that uh, a presenter has to have to be a regular presenter on the show, and, and once you get that, you go, Oh, yes, <laughs> I, I succeeded. Because I auditioned not long after I left uh, drama school, I think, and I didn't get in. I, you know, it was like, Oh, that's thank you very much, but you never heard again. I went, Hmm. So, 30 odd years later, they asked, Would I do an um, audition for Play School again? Because they were revamping and changing the format and everything keeping exactly the same um, ideas but the new sets and and a whole lot of new presenters. And lo and behold, I got in. And I've been doing it for 19 years now. Mm. Um, We were at a party together recently and um, I observed the host's nieces came up to say hello to you, they recognised you, and I observed you give them the utmost attention and time. You obviously, you know, those young fans are really important to you. Oh, well, kids are grateful, stop. Yeah. Anyway, and um, I I find them very interesting and entertaining anyway and their mindset is so intriguing. And we are all that age ourselves at some, you know, once upon a time. And I don't think we lose it either. It just might get hidden, but it's still there. And so, but yes, I think it's really important to um, engage with that audience and not just the little young ones, your general audience as well. You just because you're doing something on television doesn't make you any different from what you are when you're walking down the street or you're, you know, in a shopping centre. You should be as open and engaging as you can be to... To to everyone. To everyone, because, you know, you want them to watch oh, they, you. Yes, they keep you an employee. Your ego is up there saying, look at me, otherwise why are you doing this, you know, this profession? So... Really, it doesn't take much to be affable and and engage with somebody. But anyway, particularly children, it's really important because sometimes it's the first time they've actually seen somebody off the television and I can see their face, the, the little brain is going, wait, how can Andrew be here when he's in my television or whatever the brain says where I live in play school... And the double reality is happening at the same time, so it's really intriguing. It's good. I like it. You've done um, several films. Would you like to have done more? Oh, there will be more, mm-hmm. I'm sure. But, yeah, film, it's a strange thing. You can never, uh, you know, you can direct yourself in a certain way. I mean, direct as far as, you know, direction of your career, and you aim for certain things. But um, it's the luck of the draw whether you get them or not very often. But I, I did go through a period where I puzzled why why I wasn't sort of getting more films. Or D- such. Did people maybe look at you as a television actor? And... Maybe, maybe there was that, but of course that's changed now too. Oh, so. very much so. You look at the, uh, the television is the medium to tell great stories. Can't yeah, we see a lot of those movie actors mm. going to television mm. and telling those. It's stories? fascinating how how um, styles and opportunities change each decade or so. But um, no film, I love. But I mean. The way they do make television now, and I've just just finished Secret City 2, the second series of, for Foxtel, about political intrigue in Canberra. Not that you need fiction to tell that, but anyway. Um, and it's shot very much like a film, like a feature film. In fact, there's probably more freedom in the, uh, these kinds of television series that we're making now than there are in, in big feature films. There's a there's a flexibility a the kind of cameras they can use and digital and everything has revolutionised the whole thing, um, but there's there's a freedom of storytelling as well. You don't have to, you know, it's not so much as a beginning, a middle, and an end, which a feature film has to have. It, it, there's room to explore lots of other sides and characters and storylines within the one story, in a television show. Yeah, a film you did uh, recently was Truth. Yes, which a little while about, ago, a couple of years ago. A couple of, ago of years now. ago, and um, told the 60 Minutes story uh, about Dan Rather. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and Mary Mapes. Mary Mapes. Um, and that starred Robert Redford, who you worked with. Yes. Well, I didn't actually. You didn't have any sense of Robert Redford? No, but I made sure I shook his hand. Oh, well, that... I made sure I said, hi, Bob. There goes that question. Wow. Uh, uh, what was no, no, I was going to say, um, what was he it? He had a very what? firm handshake. So you met him. He had a firm handshake. Yeah. Um, uh, obviously, an icon of the celluloid. Yeah. Um, do you get starstruck meeting any actors? You know oh, yeah. someone like someone all like the that. Time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and that film I played Kate Blanchett's attorney. And um so my scenes were all with her, which was just fantastic. So I could sit there and watch this incredible woman do that extraordinary work that she does and how she worked with the camera. See, there was again learning, 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 learning and it's fascinating. Robert Redford, uh, Stacey Keach was in it. Um, uh, who else was in there? Um, Dennis Quaid, um, Topher Grace, uh, and Noni Hazelhurst, of course, and the host of Australian actors. But, and I only really had my scenes with Kate. But I, as I said, I made sure I, I would go on set and watch the others' work as well, when and if I could um but yes to to meet people like that and the iconic robert redford the day i met him i wasn't filming that day at all and i knew he was in there and they were filming in the city and the, all the caravans all the makeup you know the, the caravan literally the circus caravans were in the domain around there and i i said to our first assistant director could i come in you know i want to can i meet mr redford and she went yeah yeah, yeah of course come in and He'll be here about eleven, uh, going into makeup and stuff like that. So I caught the ferry in and walked through the park and then got there early. And his car duly arrived and I'm sort of sitting there having a cup of coffee and I didn't want to be pushy. So I sort of slowly sort of stood up and, and, and waited for the first A D to go oh and Andrew's in this film, Andrew, this is Mr Redford, that and, and I sort of slowly stood up and then he went straight into the wardrobe and closed the door <laughs> and I had to sit there for another hour till he came out because um, I'd missed my opportunity of, of the natural meat. Yes. Anyway, he did, he came out and I got introduced and, um, you know, what can you say, he's charming, he was lovely. Um, and then Kate had a, a weekend barbecue party a couple of weeks later and... Um, the Sydney Theatre Company actors and people were invited as well, because Andrew Upton, her husband, had you know, working with the SDC, they'd invited their their um, workers and everything for this barbecue party. But they didn't know, the SDC actors didn't know that the film, that Kate even doing a film, really. And um, I think I was chatting with Jonathan Biggins and um, Phil Scott, I think, and somebody else and I could see over their shoulder and Robert Redford was there and he started, he slouched down through this big open plan kitchen area. We were outside and he had a beer. Uh, I won't say it was in a stubby holder, but it would almost, well, it was he had a, like, you know, he had a, a, a stubby in his hand and he had his loafers on and he had a cap and a check shirt and he walked past and I said to um, Jonathan, I said, just, not too obviously, but look over your shoulder. And he went, huh? I said, just look over your sh- shoulder. And he s- sort of turned to say, what are you looking at? And he came back in his face, both of them, Phil Scott as well. It was like, they'd lost all colour. And he went, he just gawped like a, like, you know, a, a fish out of water going, "It, Robert Redford. <laughs> Surprise. Yeah, that was funny. That early part of your career with um, the Sullivan's and Flying Doctors and Patrol Boat, you were playing the very quintessential Australian bloke, very wholesome. Always did. Yeah, yeah. yeah but, so. but but later on, now oh, you know, yeah. it shows like Glitch and Devil's Playground. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and as a uh, quote to the man, man, you're playing arseholes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, that must be satisfying too. Yes. Sort of. Well, At drama school, I always wanted to play. The other yeah, yeah, ones are the play. best roles. Of course yeah. they are. Hmm. And they're also, yeah, they're the most interesting to explore because you think, oh my God, what would that be like, you know? Um, and occasionally in TV land I would, you know, be I'd be some homicidal killer. Like in um, uh, Water Rats, I think I pushed my wife out of a helicopter just to get her life insurance, (laughs) things like that. Um, But he was, on the surface, perfectly respectable and wore nice suits and the least suspicious character. That's what I would be. Um, So it was always fun to be the one that was the baby. But um, you get older and you mature and you look different and you can then not just be cast because of the way you look. And that's another point. You do get cast because of the way you look in television and film, but television, especially when you're young, and it's up to you what you do with that. And you can make a career out of being pretty bland and you know nice-looking, and but eventually that all goes away, <laughs> and you think, oh, what have they got to offer? They don't look so good anymore either, and they're boring. Um, so you've got to make the most of everything and learn how to make yourself interesting as an actor, not just superficially and thinking, oh, good, I look nice, so I'm always going to get a job. No, 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 no. Um, but with me, as as I got older and probably in my late 50s, not just that I was getting more interesting kind of characters to play, but they actually, because of the age, but they actually were much more complex and strange, like Devil's Playground, playing that poor conflicted priest. Um which was, you know, when you read it, you kind of went, do I want to play that kind of person? Do I? And like Tony Brown, but going back to the, my school Master, saying, are you, you know, I'm not sure if you're resilient, you're strong enough for that. Because you do have to explore dark areas in yourself. Psychologically, you go in places mm. to create that role. Yes, and also you have to research things, and you have to go into a reality that is often very, very confronting. And to know and understand, or try to get some kind of understanding of where these people come from, whether it's whether it's you know a, a fraudster or whether it's a, a a killer, they've got to come from somewhere real and. And it, and what it opens up can be very disturbing and maybe in some people's lives, maybe it actually touches on areas that 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 is their reality, that they have been affected by something as as um awful as um you know, child molestation or something. It 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 could be. Or that somebody in their family was murdered, or whatever it is, that brings up it can be very delicate area to go into and you have to look after yourself psychologically and sometimes you just say no I won't do that I'm not in that, I'm not in that state of mind that I'm, I'm ready to play that kind of role like I'm, I'm, not, I'm not strong enough at the moment or you go yeah yeah I can handle that uh, but you've got to be aware that you're going to take that character home with you and you've got to dispose of that kind of knowledge of that person's inner world in a way that, that allows you to no- live your own normal life and go to sleep fairly restfully. Do you um, do you worry about the next job? Oh look, we. <laughs> I mean, actors—it's the constant sort of. Yeah, we. Uh, well, I know that's a silly question for no, someone it like it you. Isn't a silly question at all. I think it's a really—it's a vital question. Uh, and you think that as you get older and you get more and more used to that's the way it is you once you finish one job you haven't got another job until you get the next job not like uh, many people in business you go well that jobs me for the next four years or you know paid holidays in a couple of weeks or no, we don't have that so yes there's always that insecure feeling and you think the more you do it the more Easier it will be the next time, but it actually isn't. In fact, I think it gets harder because <laughs> it's almost a case of diminishing returns. Because you're getting older, the roles are getting fewer because of your age and because of you know um, the type of person you'd be cast as, um, the amount of roles that are around. Um, one good thing, I suppose, somebody said to me, probably Maggie Then she said, oh, but darling, the people your age, they're getting fewer and fewer, so there's more roles Less for you. Less competition. Less <laughs> competition. Um, but no, there's always that feeling, oh, my goodness, um, I wonder if I will, A, get another job, but B, will the job be satisfying enough and how long will it be between? Because it's, it's a bit scary, especially if you've only done um, one fairly good-paying job, in a year, and then suddenly you go, that could be another three months, could be four months, could be longer, without another theatrical television film job. Then what do you do? You have to go out and get a subsistence job somehow, and then again, the days of having casual work, like when we were young, they don't really exist anymore. And also, you are older, so that you're not resilient enough to go, oh, yeah, I could pick that one up. So it's kind of good if actors have other skills, particularly... um, Well, anybody who can be a tutor or a, you know, is really fantastic within the industry. If you get a job within your own industry, it's fantastic. But many of them, friends of mine I know, have computer skills or are completely removed from exactly what our job is. But it's a really good income for when you're not working in the profession you would choose to be in. Well, I had one last question, but I realise it's redundant now. Um. I, I, my balcony at home gets a lot of sun. I was going to ask, <laughs> could, you reckon, <laughs> could you recommend uh, a plant that I could put there? A lot of sun? A lot of sun, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, you know, the marijuana plants are always a good choice, but um, probably on a balcony. Would, probably no, Would be no, no, no. sunflowers? Sunflowers? I can try that. That, that, um, uh, that could be good. Actually, strangely, gardenias really like sun, but they don't like... Oh, I, I tell you what does a potted um, frangipani, if it's a western sun... They particularly love the sun. Well, that's not bad knowledge for somebody who didn't study horticulture. <laughs> yeah, well, jack of all trades, master of dot, dot, dot. Thank you, Andrew. That that was fantastic. Oh, my pleasure. Anytime. I'm Peter Ryers, and you've been listening to Stages. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Stages Podcast Pete or like our Facebook page and keep up to date with all our current guests and those in the future, as well as checking out the archives.